I will confess that I am no art expert. I, I would barely consider myself an art lover. I appreciate it. I, I just sometimes, full disclosure, just don't get it sometimes. Um, although, I, as I said, I completely appreciate the complexity, the beauty, the wonder uh, when you see artists at work and certainly see their finished article. Um, we have a painting hanging in our house by a friend of ours. And when you're standing right beside it, up close, the detail, the texture, um, this is an artist who she uses multiple different types of media to create layers and depth. And the, the thing is just an absolute wonder when you can see the detail in it. Um, but sometimes I'm also struck that when I walk into the room that it's hanging in and you see it from a distance, you see the same kind of beauty and depth and wonder in the painting, but you see it differently because you see it from a distance. And if that's, I want to use that as a slight metaphor to what we're going to do this morning. As we've been working our way through Joshua, we've been working our way in relative detail, looking up close at the text, often taking just one chapter uh, a week to look through this wonderful book of God's word. Yet this morning, we're going to change that slightly. We're going to take a wider view over the next little chunk. And so we're going to be looking at chapters 9, 10, 11, and 12. Four chapters in one sermon. So I hope nobody has any lunch plans. Um, we'll just keep going until prayer meeting on Wednesday. Um, but we, we, we will take a look. And as I say that, obviously in doing that, like you stand at a painting from a distance, you see a beauty that you can't see when you're up close. It's not a different type of beauty. It's not a better kind of beauty. It's just a different, it's just a, a, a different view of the same masterpiece. And so if I, can, if I could encourage you, please, when you leave this place, continue to go into depth in these four chapters. Uh, so that you can see the beauty up close uh, that we won't have time to unpack in detail this morning. But let's, let's get a bearing uh, as to where we are. So we're in the book of Joshua. Uh, as Barry has already very helpfully said, um, we have been focusing on and seeing how God's word through Joshua shows us his unbreakable promises. We've been seeing how this book shows us the God who makes and keeps his promises. He is remarkably faithful. And we've seen that in, in powerful ways, God keeping his promises in, in majestic, creation-altering ways. And we've seen him at work among his people in ways that at first glance seem to us confusing, odd, a little bit strange, yet his purposes are complete and his purposes never fade. And so we've also, alongside God's unchanging faithfulness, his unbreakable promises, we've seen his people respond in different ways too. We've seen at times a level of exemplary obedience to God's word. They have done things in a way that is remarkable to show that God is true in his promises and that they can obey him fully. And yet we've also seen some devastating failures as well as his people are trying to live in the light of his promises but, so, but fail to do so adequately. And now we enter the, the middle section of the book from chapter 9 on. And we join the Israelites after they've seen and experienced the, the defeat of Jericho, the defeat of Ai. Chapter 8 then ends with them renewing the covenant with Yahweh. And now as we want to take this wide-angle view over chapters 9 to 12, then we'll see one of the key themes that we'll see running through is the theme of trust. Trust in various ways. Trust in God or trust in particularly when we look at the enemies of Israel, we see their trust in their own military strength, their own ability. But what we want to celebrate is the trust of, that God's people can have in him because of who he is and his unbreakable promises. So we'll unpack a chunk of our time together and then we will also see 
Um, a chunk of our time, sorry, will be spent in chapter 9 of Joshua, and then we will also take an overview of chapters 10, 11, and 12. And so what's interesting, one of the many things that is interesting about uh, chapter 9, 10, and 11 is they start in very similar ways. They start with a bunch of kings hearing about what God has done. And that, that, we've heard that language before. Chapter 5 started exactly the same way, where the kings had heard about the people crossing the Jordan, and the response that they had there was very different than the response we'll see now from these kings. Because back in chapter 5, even if you want to flick back to chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, we see the effect that hearing about God's work has on the kings here. So now this is chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. And then we scan forward back to chapter 9. And again, we'll see in chapter 10, repeated in chapter 11, what the kings hear evokes a very different kind of response. And so let's read the first few verses of chapter 9. Now, when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, that's the defeat of Jericho, the defeat of Ai, they had heard about these things, the kings in the hill country, in the western foothills, and along the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. So you see the different responses that we see. The, the, the kings in chapter 5, their hearts melt in fear. They don't have courage to face the Israelites. And these kings, they gather together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. And so the news of what God is doing is spreading. And it's evoking this response from the kings who hear. And I think one of the things, if we're going to take trust as one of the key things through these chapters, don't we see here the kings now putting their trust in a combined effort against Israel? If they gather their armies together, maybe that will be strong enough to defeat these people and their God. And so they trust in their own combined military strength. It seems like that shared enemy, that shared fear they have of the people of God galvanizes them together. But from chapter, or from verse 2, the, the text shifts to another people. And so we'll come back to those kings and the impact that they can have later on. But the text shifts from chapter three, or from verse three, sorry. And let's read from verse three to verse six. However, when the people of Gibeon heard, so again, more people are hearing what the Lord is doing through his people. When they had heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. So here we have these different differences of reaction and and response to what they hear about God in chapter 5 their hearts melt in fear in chapter 9 they seek to wage war but the Gibeonites they resort to a ruse they went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with torn with worn out sacks and old wineskins cracked and mended they put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes all the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, we have come from a distant country, make a treaty with us. And so here we have a new tactic. Rather than trying to fight against Israel, those from Gibeon, which was only actually about 20 miles away, they try to figure out a way in which they can get on Israel's good side, make a treaty with them so that Israel won't attack Gibeon. And the only way to do that was through this treaty. And this is a bit of a risky strategy. Would the Israelites make a treaty with someone in the land? Or, or maybe the question 
might be, should they make a treaty with someone in the land? Well, God had explicitly told them not to. In places like Exodus 34, we see it again in Deuteronomy 7, again in Deuteronomy 20. God had had regularly said, don't make a treaty with these people because they may lead you away from me. But also, as we've seen throughout Joshua too, that he had repeatedly said that the people of the land must be driven out, must be completely destroyed in judgment of their generations of sin. And, And so should this treaty happen? No. But perhaps the Gibeonites knew that too. That's why they create this ruse. They come in disguise, if you like, as if they're coming from a far off place because maybe they knew that God had permitted his people to make a treaty with those who weren't in the land but were lands distant. And so their moldy supplies, their worn out clothes, it was all evidence that they traveled for a desperately long way to meet the Israelites where they are now. And so this could be a treaty worth, uh, that could happen if they were from a distant land. But it seems that the Israelites, Joshua and the Israelites, maybe do start off rightly skeptical as the, as the Gibeonites present themselves. Let's pick it up in verse 7. And we'll read through to verse 13. The Israelites said to the Hivites, but perhaps you live near us, so how can we make a treaty with you? So right off we see the Israelites know they're not supposed to make a treaty with anyone in the land. And so Joshua says, or sorry, they say to Joshua in verse 8, we are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, Who are you and where do you come from? They answered, your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. We have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, to Sihon king of Heshbon and Og king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, take provisions for your journey. Go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants, make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. But now see how dry and moldy it is. And these wineskins that we filled were new. But see how cracked they are. And our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. They, they really go far and way beyond necessary to make it obvious. We have come from a very distant land. We are not close neighbors. And so they praise Israel's God. We've come here because of the fame of the Lord your God. They manufacture their outfits, their belongings, everything to give credence to the claim that they are from a distant land. They come and say, we are your servants. They're coming humbly. All of these things may make the Israelites think these people are genuine. Really interestingly, what they have heard of the Lord, they don't mention anything recent. So they don't talk about Jericho. They don't talk about crossing the Jordan. They don't talk about defeating Ai because that would give the impression that they've heard because they've been close. So no, we've only heard about what your Lord did in Egypt And so all of this is building this very convincing picture, isn't it? So what are the Israelites and Joshua to do? We know they're not to make a treaty with someone close to them. But the Israelites, verse 14, sampled their provision, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live. And the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Well, if if one of the the threads running through these four chapters that we'll look at this morning is the concept of trust, it seems that Joshua and the leaders here are trusting what is in front of them. They're trusting their gut instinct. They're trusting the evidence that is presented, but they are not trusting in the mechanism God had given them, which was prayer. 
He had told him back in Numbers 27, God had told Joshua, if you need to make a decision, come to me with the priest, use the Urim and the Thummim, and I will show you the decision that needs to be made. But devastatingly, verse 14, very plainly says, but they did not inquire of the Lord. And so God had made himself available to Joshua, and Joshua chose not to look to him for his help. Dale Ralph Davis really helpfully notes, Tim, if you can flick that on. Yahweh's direction was available, but was ignored. It was not that they were sloppy in their investigation, but they were alone in their decision. It wasn't that they didn't think, but they didn't pray. See, that's the problem. The Israelites were very thorough in their examination of these folks who had come. They, they sampled the provisions. They did all that they maybe should have done from their own perspective, but they didn't inquire of the Lord. And again, I think we could jump very quickly to judgment here. How could they do this? God had made it abundantly clear, had he not? Had they not learned anything on this journey so far? Surely God's faithfulness had been so clearly on display time and time again that they couldn't not know that he was with them, that he was looking to guide them, that he was available to help them. But perhaps again, we need to, to see this passage as being held up as a mirror to us in our own lives who follow Jesus. That, that many of us know the reality of knowing the promises of God, knowing the reality, knowing that he is there to help. And yet when decision time comes, we trust everything else around us. We trust our gut instinct. We trust the circumstances that are dictating it rather than turning to the father who is knowable, who is available, who is askable, if I can create a word. We have a God who is relational and who has made himself open to us. And yet too often we trust ourselves and our own instincts. Now, of course, God has given us a mind that is to be engaged. But he always offers himself to us too. As Barry so helpfully led us through this morning, Psalm 121, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. You see, we, we have access to the all-sovereign God who bends his listening ear to us and guides us by his spirit and his word. And yet so often we, we try to figure things out on our own and set our own path and follow our own agenda. But perhaps then we can see this example here as a warning example to us to, to be quick to turn to God, to be quick to look to him for his wisdom, for his knowledge, for his understanding, Let's appreciate the bountiful knowledge that he has and be all too happy, come to him and say, I don't know enough, Lord. Would you show me your way? And therefore, may we ask for Yahweh to speak to us in that way. The Hebrew of that verse in verse 14, they did not inquire of the Lord. It actually has this emphasis of the mouth of Yahweh they did not ask. Isn't that Yahweh's waiting the Lord is waiting for us to come to him and lay our burdens and seek, our, seek his guidance. And they didn't do it, and so often we didn't. But in other words, may this serve as a warning for us that we can trust in the God because we can trust in the God who knows. He knows beginning from end. He knows all things at all time and in all place. And he makes himself open to us to come so that we can learn from him and therefore be guided by him so we can trust in the God who knows. It's the first element that we see of trust here. That they didn't inquire of the Lord. The Lord, the one who knew, the one who could have told them 
these people are, are, are deceiving you, but no, they didn't look to him, and so they didn't know what he knew. And so that's our first point, that we can trust in the God who knows. But as we go back to chapter 9, the, the, the truth does come out. The Israelites realize that these people have deceived them, that they are indeed neighbors, that they're not from a far off land. And so they set out to chase them. And many of them looking for revenge. They say, you have tricked us and so we will, we will cut you down. But what's clear is that's not the right thing to do either. See, the treaty was wrong, yes. It was wrong of the Gibeonites to deceive the Israelites, yes. But this, this oath had been made in the name of Yahweh, the chapter goes on to tell us. And so if the people were to go and then undo that oath, it would actually defame Yahweh. And that was unthinkable for God's people. And so they go, and we're actually told towards the end of the chapter, you see in verse 26, Joshua saved them from the Israelites and they did not kill them. The Israelites were so enraged by the deception that they wanted to kill them. And Joshua said, we can't because we made an oath in the name of the Lord and the name of the Lord cannot be, be smeared by our bad actions. And so we have to keep the oath. And so rather than letting them go free, indeed the people, are, the Gibeonites are brought in as servants of the Israelite people. We see this in verse 27. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the assembly to provide for the needs of the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And that is what they are to this day. And, and so even in this fascinating episode, we see the sovereignty of God at play. That, that the deception that comes into the people of Israel, which could have derailed them from God's mission, it could have taken them away from worshiping Yahweh because they had now opened themselves up to this level of deception. God in his sovereignty works it all around that the people who deceived them are actually now going to be the ones who help sustain the worship of him among his people. So they will provide the wood and the water for the altar of the Lord. And so God's sovereignty is at play so that he will be glorified even in the mess ups of our lives. And indeed, Doug Johnson points out that this is another occasion where we see God's ability to work even in and through the messes his people make because behind all the action, this is Doug Johnson's quote, behind all the action, the ebb and flow of history and the fallibility of Israel and its leaders, there stands the most powerful promise of all, the promise of God. And so God's promise is standing behind everything that is going on. And in his sovereignty, just like we saw a few years ago when we looked at, jo at Joseph's story, that even when things seem to go way off course, God is working out his plan and he always will. And therefore, because his promise will always stand, his promise is unbreakable, we can trust in the God who knows. And what a comfort that is to us. When we face decisions, when we face uncertainty, when we're not sure what way to turn, God is the God who knows. He knows everything all at once. So we can turn to him. And then we reach chapter 10 of Joshua. And this treaty with the Gibeonites comes into force because the, the chapter begins, as we mentioned earlier, with kings hearing about what is happening and a response is coming. Let's read the first five verses of chapter 10. Now, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its kings what he had done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon might have made a treaty of peace with Israel and become their allies. 
he and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and all its men were good fighters. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hohem, king of Hebron, Purim, king of Jarmuth, Japhiah, king of Lachish, and Deber, king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made a peace treaty with, G- with, Joseph, or sorry, with Joshua and the Israelites. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took positions against Gibeon and attacked it. And so here we have this set of kings who hear what's going on and their response is like the the kings we saw at the start of chapter 9. They want to attack. But rather than attack Israel, they attack Gibeon. And so the folks within Gibeon appeal to Joshua and say, we're being attacked. Would you come now? Keep the treaty that you made with us and come to our aid. And they do. Joshua promptly responds. The chapter goes on to tell us how the army quick marched through the night and, and launched a surprise attack on those trying to attack Gibeon. And indeed, they, they, capture, they, they capture the kings and they then pursue defeating all the armies that they can. And so this is, this is a chapter that sounds militarily very impressive. But, but once again, the text is very clear to show who is working behind the scenes to bring all this to pass. Who is it that's working to make sure that Israel is able to fulfill what God has called them to? Well, it's God himself. See, in verse 8, the Lord speaks to Joshua and says to him, Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to stand against you. I have given them. How many times have we heard that through the story of Joshua? Where God promises, I have given it. I am in control. Do not fear, for I have it. In verse 8, he gives them that. Then in verse 10, as the battle is going on, Uh, we see that the Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. And so even though the surprise attack was there, it was the Lord who threw the armies into confusion. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon, verse 10 says. And then verse 11, as they're pursuing them, this incredible encounter takes place. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them and more of them died from the hail than were killed by the sword of the Israelites. So who is the force that's acting here? It's the Lord. It is the great God of power. So God is at work. And because God is at work, the people could trust. And they could trust in the God who knows, yes, and they could trust in the God of power. What other God can throw hailstones on an army And kill more of them than the sword and yet not harm a single Israelite. What other God can confuse a whole team of cities who have come to attack another? They trusted in the power of God. They knew firsthand the truth that God's promise. That if he he has said, I have given them into your hand. Then they knew the reality that we see in verse 12. On that day, the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel. Of course he did, because in verse 8 he said he would. So he does. The Lord's unbreakable promise, and so the people could act then, trusting in his power. And more than that, this is a, this is a fascinating encounter that we see, that in this battle, Joshua calls to the God of power to intervene specifically. He prays in the middle of the battle. Let me read the prayer that Joshua said to the Lord in verse 12. Sun, stand stand still over Gibeon, and you, moon, over the valley of Agilon. So 
Verse 13, the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged themselves on its enemies. So God, Joshua prays that God would stop the sun from moving. And he does. Now, with a, a dramatic miracle like this, there are all sorts of theories as to what had happened. How could this have been? Was it some kind of eclipse? Was it just that the darkness spread? It wasn't the sun that stopped. It was actually the darkness that continued through the night. We're not told in the text. What we're told in the text is that Joshua prays for the sun to stop, and the sun stops. It's a miracle that is supposed to astound us. How God did that, I don't know. But that's the point. The God of power can. He created the sun, the moon, and the planets that spin. So pausing them for a day is nothing to him. This is the remarkable God who miraculously intervenes, and he intervenes at Joshua's request. The power of God listening to the cry of one man. So verse 14 comes to show that there has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Why did God stop the sun? Why did he fight against the Amorites? Because he was fighting for his people. He was showing himself to be the God of power that his people could trust in. And so there's a wonderful display of God's power here. And often God does show that power in supernatural ways like we see here in verse, 12, verse 10. Yet he also shows and demonstrates his power through the people's obedience to him. The army still have to go and fight. God may have given them into the hands of the Israelites. The, the Israelites still had to go and subdue. We've seen that time and time again. And it does raise once again this question to us of how does this interplay work between the God who is sovereign over all things, who calls his people to action? Dale Ralph Davis, I have found incredibly helpful in this regard. And he says this, it's a lengthy quote, but it's worth reading. Divine sovereignty does not negate human activity, but stimulates it. We frequently look at the teaching of divine sovereignty too simplistically. Some will allege that if God ordains something as certain, it renders human effort irrelevant. Let go and let God, you may hear. But Joshua knew better, Ralph Davis says. His view was not to let go, but to grab hold. Divine sovereignty creates confidence, which calls forth our effort, even to the point of reckless abandon. God's sovereignty is not a doctrine that shackles, but a reality that liberates us. Not a cloud that stifles, but an elixir that invigorates. So God promised the people, I have given them into your hand so they can fight with courage. It's not a God has given us into our hands so we can sit back and do nothing. No, because he has promised the outcome, we can go with full courage and real obedience. And so the promise of God is actually seen in the actions of his people. Because they know his promises to be unbreakable, they can act accordingly. And so the Lord was fighting for Israel. He was giving their enemies into their hands. They still had to get up and go and take them. They still display trust in the God of power by the way they act. And so God's promises are indeed unbreakable. Therefore, us as his people, we can trust in the God who knows. We can trust in the God of power. 
Chapter 10 continues to go on then and shows us what happens to the five kings who are defeated. And again, it's an episode where confidence is built in the commanders of the army as God reveals more of his plans and his, um, his unbreakable nature of his promises to his people. Joshua says to the commanders in verse 25, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, be strong and courageous. We've heard that before, haven't we? God said that to Joshua. Now Joshua is letting that message be known among the people. Do not be afraid. The Lord is fighting for us. We can keep trusting in the God of power. And then chapter 10 concludes with with, uh, telling us of, of Joshua and the Israelites moving through the southern end of their campaign. It's the first time that I'll show a map, which is amazing that we've got this far into Joshua and I haven't looked at a map yet. But this shows where the Israelites then went on to attack. And so they go from here and the conquest moves from their camp at Gilgal. They move south and capture Mekeda, Libna, Lachish, Eglon, Hebron, Debir. And the summary is then given to us at the very end of chapter 10, verse 40 to 41. So Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western hill, foothills, and the mountain slopes, together with all their kings. He left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Joshua subdued them from Kedesh Berea to Gaza and from the whole region of Goshen to Gibeon. All these kings and their lands Joshua conquered in one campaign because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. And so there's, there's complete obedience from Joshua here. We've talked before about that, that devastating language of destroying all who were there as God pours out his judgment upon sin, generations of sin. But the point is Joshua subdued all the land that God had told him to because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. And so the people can have complete trust in God, the God who knows, the God who is the God of power. He was with them, he was guiding, he was fighting for them and so they could continue to advance in his plan. And that's where chapter 11 takes us. We've seen the southern campaign at the end of chapter 10. Chapter 11 then takes us northward. But the same pattern begins at chapter 11 where kings hear what is happening and they respond. But this time there's a difference in the way the kings respond, certainly in what they respond with. If we pick it up in verse 4, we'll see what I mean. So there's a whole, there, there's kings that gather together again, and they come out with, verses 4 of chapter 11, they come out with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. All these kings joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And so this looks really ominous. These armies are getting bigger and more technical. It's the first time we hear of chariots and horses being used. What would this do to the people of Israel? Would they crumble in fear? Well, how could they? They can trust in the God who knows, trust in the God of power. And actually, once again, we see God speaking into the situation to convince them that he was continuing to be with them. And so in verse 6, the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, because by this time tomorrow, I will hand all of them slain over to Israel. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. So the people can trust, yes, in the God who knows, trust in the God of power. And once again, like we've seen many times before, they can trust in the God who speaks. He speaks directly to Joshua and said, don't be afraid. By this time tomorrow, it'll all be done. I will hand them over to you. And so even in the context of this daunting foe, what kindness of God to speak to his people. 
and assure them of his presence, assure them that he will continue to fight for them. And so they can trust because God has said it to be. We're back to the same theme time and time again. God says it, it will happen. Therefore, the people can move in obedience to him. See, trusting in God's words leads to action. And as you, I would encourage you to spend some time reading through all of chapter 11. And one of the things you'll see there is a repetition of an idea. There's two phrases that are repeated twice. We see, as the Lord directed, in verse 9 and verse 23. And we see, as the Lord commanded, in verse 15 and 20. The idea is, God spoke and the people did. Speaking primarily of Joshua, he did. Because they could trust in the God who speaks, he had proved himself so faithful, unbreakably faithful in the past. So what he called them to do now, they could go and do with full assurance that he would follow through on his promise. And so there's this, there's this unbreakable line between God has said it and the people go and do it. As the Lord directed, as the Lord commanded. But not only that, we see this wonderful chain of faithfulness. If you look with me at verse 15. As the Lord had commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And so we see this chain of the truth of God's word being passed down and then enacted. The Lord spoke to Moses, Moses spoke to Joshua, Joshua did it. It's a wonderful example, isn't it, of the importance of hearing God's word and passing it on to those around us. Not just obeying it ourselves like Moses had, but passing it on to Joshua who fully obeyed it and indeed passed it on to the people. And isn't that important for us to consider? As God's people now in 2023, how important it is for us to hear God's word and pass it on. That's why our kids are at the minute hearing God's wonderful word by Elizabeth and the team up serving a breakout. It's why Paul and Callum take every Sunday morning before church, not today because it was half term, every Sunday morning to teach our teenagers in Bible class. It's why when we come towards Christmas, we'll be providing family devotionals to be used around the dinner table because it is key that we hear God's word and we pass it on. It's a, it's a key biblical principle that we see all through scripture. And we can do that because we can trust in the God who speaks. God is not silent. God does not leave us on our own to figure it out. He speaks. And so firstly, we must hear his voice and then live that out and pass it on to those around us, including the generations that follow. And so all of this takes place. The southern area is is defeated. The northern area is defeated. And then we have this summary at the end of chapter 11 and verse 23. So Joshua took the entire land, just as the Lord directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. Then the land had rest from war. And that then takes us into chapter 12 and following, where we start to see the land being divided up among the people, and we'll get there in a couple of weeks. But chapter 12 just summarizes the 31 kings that Joshua has defeated up to this point. So here we have this wonderful picture as we stand back from the beauty of God's word and we see these four chapters as one unit, don't we see how good it is to trust in the Lord? How we can trust in the God who knows, beginning from end, all things at all time, he knows. We can trust in the God of power who is able to hurl hailstones at an army as well as hear the cries of one man. 
And we can trust in the God who speaks, who continues to speak to us through his word by his spirit. And so may we, as, as readers of his word now, as followers of him in this day, may we recognize the reality that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is unchanging. His promises are unbreakable. And so may we hear them and may we live in the light of them. And may we pass them on to those around us. This is the joy we have of following in the footsteps of faith, where we see God's unbreakable promises. We know him to be the God who knows everything, the God who is powerful over everything, the God who continues to speak. And so may we hear his word and do what he says, therefore live in the light of it. I pray that that's been a helpful overview of these chapters. We will continue on as we move through uh, Joshua um, over after half term. Um, but please do continue to read, to study, to recall, to question, to savor the words of God as we see in his word. They are good. He is good. And so let's pray to him. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your unending, unbreakable word. We thank you that you continue to speak to us through your word. It is the primary place where we see you, where we hear your wonderful truth. And so I pray, Father, that we would be people of your word, people who love your word. And Father, for those of us who, who struggle, who, who feel dry, who, who, who find it difficult, Father, would you ignite again that flame of desire to read your word? And may, may a discipline develop a devotion for your word, Father, we pray. Thank you, God, that you do speak to us. You lead us and you guide us and you can do those things because you're the God who knows everything. The beginning from the end, you know the cosmic and the intimate. So we pray, Father, that we would act in the way that you lead us because of who you are. Lord, that we would know you to be the God of power, that we would see you do mighty things in our lives and in our world. And also, Father, we would see you at work in the tiny details too as you are ever present with us. Lord, we thank you. You are indeed the God who speaks. And so would you help us to hear your voice above the, the many different competing voices that we hear. May your voice of truth speak loudly into our hearts. Be so implanted there that it transforms the way we live. And as we always do, Father, we pray these things for your glory, for the extension of your kingdom. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.